I want to invite you guys to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Tonight we continue our walk through this exciting first century Christian narrative called the book of Acts. Um, Tonight we will be looking at really part two of the scene we looked at last week when Peter and John heal a beggar and uh, the story picks up from there. And as is our custom, we're going to pair this reading from the book of Acts with a reading from the Old Testament. So I've invited uh, Emma and April, if they can come up, and they will read our Old Testament reading and our sermon text. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 through 9. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Our sermon text tonight comes from Acts chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you 
rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signed and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in your kindness and mercy, we ask that you would, in these few moments, do the thing that only you can do. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would shine light on these words in your word. Lord, that you'd shine light on, Lord, our hearts in places where light needs shown. And Lord, that you would use these words and the words that I've prepared, Lord, to great effect in our hearts and in our lives, we pray. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name. Amen. So as I read and thought about this passage this week, I thought to myself, Dr. Smith would have been proud again. For those who were not here last week, I mentioned the professor of mine in seminary, Dr. Smith, who's a legend. He's a legend in the African-American preaching tradition. And there's a story that went around about Dr. Smith that one time a seminary student preached a seminary sermon, and Dr. Smith's feedback was simply, you never said his name. You talked about him, you talked around him, but you never said his name. There's power in his name. Don't ever let me hear that you didn't say his name. And last week we talked about how the name of Jesus, which is shorthand for the fullness of Jesus's person and work, all that he is and all that he does is the thing we actually have to offer to the world. But tonight, 
we get Peter and John speaking about the name of Jesus, boldly declaring the name of Jesus, but there's a new wrinkle to the story as of tonight. This name of Jesus is opposed. See, so far in the book of Acts, the believers are enjoying favor from those outside the Christian community. But as of this moment in this narrative, the story begins to turn. And rather than enjoying favor from this point forward, there will be an increasing opposition to the proclamation of the name of Jesus. So tonight's a night when we get to think together about the shape, the contours of opposition to the name of Jesus. So here's how we're going to go about this tonight. The first thing, this is actually a pretty fascinating scene from the book of Acts. So we're going to talk about this scene. And after talking about this scene, some of the parts of it that I find interesting that you can't miss, I'm going to try to do my best to tell you what I think it means for you and for me, because I actually believe that in this passage, we, if we'll listen, can receive such deep and abiding hope from it. So as we travel through tonight, there's a main thing I want you to hear. If you don't have anything else to say, this is the thing you have to hear. The name of Jesus actually advances in spite of opposition. There's a lot of hope for you and I in that. So let's take a look. Let's look at this scene. Look with me at verses one through four. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So after Peter and John performed this miracle, and a beggar is healed, a fuss is created, and Peter announces to the crowd who witnessed this healing, he announces to the crowd the, the power of the name of Jesus, and he calls upon the crowd to repent and to turn to Christ. And it seems good, and it seems exciting. But then we learn here in verse 1 that the captain of the temple, the priests, the Sadducees come upon them. Okay, this is a particular group in power in Jerusalem. When you think of the Sadducees, when you think of the captain of the temple, and you think of the guards that would have been associated with them, you've got to be thinking of a powerful group of people in Jerusalem. The Sadducees were almost like a political party of, of a kind, but they ran the temple. The temple, the temple system, the little cottage industry of businesses that popped up around the temple, um, even the corruption that had come into temple life that we read about in the gospel stories when Jesus walks in and flips the tables upside down, all of that was the Sadducees doing or at least they were overseeing the temple. They had a group of police that followed them around. And what we learn in this case is that they're greatly annoyed. I find it kind of interesting when the Bible just 
calls things like it is, these Sadducees were annoyed. (laughs) Well, why? Why are they annoyed? Well, I think what we see in their being annoyed, what we see is just the way that the powers of this world work. They're annoyed because it goes something like this. The man that they had just crucified about two or three months earlier than this scene had been raised from the dead, and now his followers are going out, pronouncing he's been raised from the dead, and doing the same sign, miracles, and healings that he had done. And it's, again, disrupting their way of being and living, and they're annoyed by that. In verse 2, we learned that they're particularly annoyed because they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Just an interesting side note here. The Sadducees didn't believe that there was a resurrection from the dead. This great Jewish hope that the dead would one day be raised, the Sadducees didn't believe that. They didn't believe that was going to happen. For them, all that there was was the here and now, and they just know that these followers of Jesus are disrupting what is here and what is now and what is comfortable. So in verse 3, they arrest them. It's late in the evening, so they make them spend the night in jail. But look with me at verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. This is the narrator's way of telling us just already from the beginning, and by the way, in spite of the Sadducees' annoyance, the message of Jesus just keeps marching on. So they've got Peter and John in jail, and they've got to do something about that. So the next day, they have an inquiry of sorts. Um, If I knew anything about legal matters, I would try to compare it to you for a hearing or a deposition or a trial. I don't know any of these things, though. It was official business is what I'm trying to tell you. So here it is, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest. This is the same high priest who put Jesus Christ on trial. And Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were in the high priest's family. What Luke, the narrator, is telling us is is John and Peter are coming before the powerful people of Jerusalem of that day, just like Jesus had to. They have to. Verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, and this is the way these trials would work, they would be in the middle and the room would surround them. Inquiries, questions, not front and center, but all around. And they sat them in the midst and they inquired, by what power and by what name did you do this? Verse 8, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. That's important. He's empowered by the Spirit to bear witness in this moment. Said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you. Listen to how clear and how bold Peter speaks. Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ 
of Nazareth. First name Jesus, last name Christ from Nazareth. Peter wants to be very clear who he's talking about. Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is bold He's clear, he goes for it, he talks about the resurrection, he knows they don't like that. He speaks honestly, he speaks clearly, he speaks boldly. You don't get the sense he speaks arrogantly, sinfully, but truthfully. I was thinking this week about Peter's boldness and what I tend to do. My tendency is to be less clear in moments in order to kind of win over the people that I'm talking to. And I don't mean that in spiritual matters. I mean that that's my personality in all matters. Southern people are taught the art of being unclear. Nobody ever taught you how to be unclear. You picked up on it. (laughs) It's probably another sermon for another day. In the, in the, the heart of Peter's bold witness, Verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christians are taught, and we should be taught, I should say, we should understand that we're not to cause unnecessary offense because of the gospel by our arrogant actions and attitudes and foolishness. But there is a kind of necessary offense that the gospel creates. See, deep down inside of every person, even you and me, we we don't want to think that there is a Lord who rules over us. But see, Christianity claims that this Lord who rules over us is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. So it's extra difficult to swallow. It's interesting how the Sadducees react. Look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You get a hint here in the story that the, that the rulers, the elders, the, the temple people, the powerful people, who were annoyed, you get the sense that they, in a way, tipped their caps to Peter and John. They respect their boldness. They notice, how are these untrained fishermen able to speak so clearly and boldly in such a moment as this? That's commendable. You get the sense that they 
tip their cap to the boldness. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they respect Peter and John's boldness, and they can't deny the truth of what has happened to this man because the lame beggar who had been there for years, he's almost 40 years old, is now standing upright in front of them. They can't deny the truth of it. So they respect the boldness. They can't deny the truth. But then what we see next, they oppose it anyway. They saw the boldness. They have nothing to say in opposition. Verse 15, but when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to no more speak in his name. So they called them in, charged them not to speak at all in the name of Jesus. And then Peter and John respond with, in the face of opposition, even more boldness. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge because we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for they were all praising God for what happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Peter and John say politely, kindly, you can judge the things you need to judge, but I'm telling you what we're going to do. We're going to continue to speak of the things that we've seen and that we've heard. There comes a point in the life of following Jesus, where you become very, very, very compelled by who he is and what he's done. They're there. So what happens now? They go, and I'll summarize, they tell the Christian community, their family, their friends, the gathered believers, they go and tell of what happened. And it's interesting that what the gathered community of believers, it's interesting what they do versus what they don't do. They don't decide not to proclaim the name of Jesus anymore. They don't despair that now they're facing opposition. They don't begin to rally anybody to try to petition the temple police or the temple people, none of that. What they do in this scene is that they simply pray for more boldness. They expect that this opposition will occur. That's the point of them quoting Psalm 2. And then they pray for more boldness, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They pray for more power. They pray for more of the Spirit's work. And the message of Jesus just marches right along. 
I'm speaking for me in the face of difficulty and trial. What I often do is I actually pray that the Lord would make the trial stop. And it's okay to pray that. It's totally okay to pray that. But it is a good time to tell you that the Lord usually, usually, he usually doesn't make trials stop. At least not quickly. But what he does instead is give, by the power of his spirit, the resources and grace to continue to endure the trials. And provide a pathway by which we can be faithful in the midst of them. And that's what we see here. But the point is, this name of Jesus, this proclamation of Christ is being opposed. And the truth just keeps marching on. So great story, Joel. What do we do with this? I mean, this is a first century story. So what about you and me in 2022? Because I actually believe that this scene really gives and is intended to give you and I great hope tonight. There's a place in the book of Romans where the apostle Paul says, all the things that were written in former days were written so that through the faithful endurance and encouragement you see there, you might have hope. And Paul, of course, is talking about probably the Old Testament, but now on this side of the New Testament, this story is meant to do the same for you and for me. This story was told to us so that we can see the faithful endurance and by the encouragement of this story that you and I can have hope tonight. So where's the hope tonight? I want to end tonight by pointing you to a few places of hope. And before I do, let me just remind you, earlier in this book of Acts, we learned that if you're a Christian person, you are already a witness to Christ. You are already. It's not something you sign up for. Your life is a pointing life intended to point people to Christ. Everything that he is, everything that he's done, you are a witness already. So where's the hope for you and me from this story as we embark on this call to be a faithful witness? It might not for you look as dramatic as it looks here. I mean, it's unlikely, it's highly unlikely that anyone today that is here tonight will be brought before, say, the city council in Homewood tomorrow to be um, subjected to some sort of hearing regarding Christian faith that's unlikely to happen this week. But even so, we're called to be a witness to the truth of the gospel, even in the face of opposition. So where's the hope? There's a couple things of hope for us tonight, and here's the first one. The first one I want to give you by way of hope, I want to just talk to you about expectation. So first of all, 
Like I just said, it's unlikely that an opportunity to bear witness to Jesus will come off this dramatic for you. But our Lord Jesus himself promises us, he promises us that because we belong to him, we will face a kind of opposition in this life. So you can't casually hang around a crucified Christ and not expect to have to pick up crosses. He promises opposition. And it's, it's really hopeful to know, to expect opposition. It's hopeful to know. And here's why it's hopeful to know. Because if you don't know to expect it, if you don't know it's a promise from Jesus, you're going to feel like you've done something wrong when it happens. And you haven't. I can think of a person in our congregation right now that because of this pressure situation is having to boldly witness to the truth of Jesus in costly ways. And this person has been tempted to think they have somehow done something wrong and they have it. It's just that this is how it goes. So if you feel that a moment of, of pained opposition because of your allegiance to Jesus is coming your way, you haven't done anything wrong. It's going to happen. It's a promise eventually. There comes a point in every Christian's life where it occurs. I think it's hopeful to know to expect it. Okay, here's a second piece of hope. And the second piece of hope tonight has to do, and I don't know what to call this one. I call that one expectation. I'm going to call this one Peter. I mean, this is Peter we're talking about, okay? See, there'd be a temptation for you and for me to read this story and think to yourself, I wonder if you thought it. If I were ever put in a situation where I would have to boldly witness to the truth, I would not have it in me to be so clear and be so courageous. And what I'm telling you tonight is Peter didn't have it in him either. A couple like months literally prior to this, Jesus is on trial before these very people and Peter's outside hiding away with foul mouth curses saying he wanted to have nothing to do with the person inside. Jesus Christ wanted to have nothing to do with them. And in fact, denied in the strongest possible terms any kind of association with him. Peter didn't have it in him either. But see, the spirit of God changes everything. And the spirit of God empowers Peter for this moment. See, Jesus had promised that these kind of moments were happening, but the rest of that sentence Jesus promises is that when they do, you'll have everything you need to be faithful. So I'm just wanting to tell you by way of hope that it will not be the courage inside of you. It won't be that. I want to tell you by way of hope, it will not be the clever things you could think up to say. It won't be that. 
It will not be your kind of skills to sort of massage the situation, to win others over. Win others over is an acronym, woo. It won't be woo. It won't be that. But instead, it will be the power of the Holy Spirit to give you exactly what you need to be his faithful witness. You'll have it. You'll have everything you need. Third thing by way of hope, I just want to close tonight by talking about the victory, the victory of Jesus. See, the truth of the matter is, is if there's a crucified one who's now alive, who's been raised from the dead, who at this very moment upholds the universe by his power, it means that this Jesus has already won. And he's won over at least two different groups. First of all, he's won over the power of sin and death and darkness. He's won over the power that would seek to destroy his name or his people. He's won over the principalities, the rulers of this world. He's won. The Apostle Paul says that we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but instead we struggle against something much bigger, much grander, much scarier, much darker, but equally as defeated, you don't have to be afraid. Secondly, as if there were not enough, the scriptures teach us he's even one over the opposition that comes by the way from you. See, you and I resist Jesus just the same. See, in his grace and in his mercy, this king of kings and this Lord of lords, this crucified one who was raised, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, by the power of his spirit, he can even overcome the things inside of you. And in fact, he promises that he's making each of us new one degree of glory to another, day by day by day by day, that the good work he has started in you, he will be faithfully to complete faithful to complete, Jesus Christ has won. And so what's left is just bold and fervent prayer. Bold and fervent prayer as we endure. Let's pray together. Lord, these things are easier to talk about from a pulpit than to live. Lord, I'm thinking about the real relationships that perhaps are difficult and painful that will require bold witness to the truth. Lord, I'm thinking about the real situations that each of us may be placed in. I'm thinking about the difficulty of life in this world, some of which is even caused by us. Lord, we ask your spirit would be at work to make us, by your grace, into faithful witnesses for the sake of your name, we pray. Amen.